Get ready to rumble. Shilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Spencer Clayman, a scholar, writer, a podcaster, editor at the Claremont Institute, and author of the new book, How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. And Spencer Clayman, thank you so much for joining us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. When we talk about ancient wisdom, I'm concerned in some instances that people would not even understand what we're talking about. So why don't we start there? Because we're so detached from what is ancient. I told somebody that I was writing a book called How to Save the West, a friend of mine, and she said, oh, that's great. I love John Wayne movies. And I thought, <laughs> so that's not, not quite what I mean. This is a book based on kind of a radical idea in, in the modern day, and that radical idea is that the past has something to say to the present. We've been taught, I think, that ancient texts, ancient books, books from uh, you know the distant past, they're just superstitious, they're kind of moldy, and uh, maybe even a little bit racist or misogynist or colonialist. I, I don't believe that at all. I grew up surrounded by the great works of Athens and Jerusalem, and that's really what I'm talking about when I talk about the West. Um, these two pillars of civilization, Athens stands in for uh, the ancient philosophies of Greece and Rome, those pagan civilizations, and then Jerusalem stands in for Jewish and Christian scripture and the wisdom literature that comes down through that tradition. So those two streams really meet together in, in Europe to create the world that we live in. And when you say, well, you know, why should we care? Um, the thing is that you and I both wake up every day in a world full of disasters, just new cycle after new cycle seems to deliver some new uh, oddity, something that brings new fears. Uh, and it seems totally unprecedented. I talk to a lot of people feel like there's just, you know, none of this has ever happened before. Um, and what I'm showing in the book is just that, it, in fact, even though a lot of the technology we're facing is new, a lot of the events are new, underneath all of it is, is, are some very fundamental questions. You know, what is a human being? Uh, what's my place in the universe? How should I relate to the world and to my fellow man? Um, and those questions have been around forever. They're becoming more urgent and not less. And because they've been around for a long time, the greatest minds of the world have, have wrestled with them, have come up with good answers, good proposals for dealing with them. Um, and this is really good news because it means we're not alone. That's what wisdom really is. It's companionship from the past. And, and that's what I'm offering. So I'm concerned that this wisdom is evaporating from modern Western culture. And I want to ask you, because it wasn't so many generations ago that all of this thought was revered in the West and particularly mm -hmm. in America. So how did we lose this? Was this a dedicated a program to kind of eradicate this sort of thought from America or did we just let it slip away? There's certainly some complacency involved. We, we as Americans have some blame to shoulder here for 
having you know become too confident in our prosperity. But there was also a systematic campaign to erase this stuff from the public record. I mean, uh, we all probably remember, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go, the great chant from Stanford. Um, but that's just the tip of the iceberg, really. I mean, Marxists of the late 20th century, when they realized that America couldn't be radicalized in economic terms, that we had a strong middle class, that people weren't going to you know, rise up out of discontent uh, because of their economic situation. They started what, what they called the long march through the institutions, this whole notion from Antonio Gramsci and some of these other European Marxists that really what, what needed to happen was that Americans needed to be turned, turned against one another according to social class, according to um, you know, their, the color of their skin, to be taught that they they had, you know, secret resentments that they harbored based on sexism and so forth. And this is where we get ideas like white skin privilege, which eventually becomes white privilege, you know, that comes up during this, this time. You, you could say it was done on purpose. It was done by commies. And, um, and the point was essentially to alienate us from one another and from our history so that we could be made to quote unquote see or understand that really, you know, the whole system needs to be overthrown or overturned. Um, I just think that's turned out to be a bum deal. I think people are, are sad or angrier. Um, and as you say, more um, at war with the wisdom that could help them uh, in this uh, crucial moment. So how is it, Spencer, that uh, people like Gramsci and Marx and Engels and others, their philosophies uh, continue to be promoted, and yet the true wisdom is suppressed? In other words, what's happened to the common wisdom of the people? Well, you know, I think there's still a lot of it there for all of it. Uh, it's been, you know, all of the people have had their brains scooped out with a melon baller by these elites. You know, I, I, I actually think that the American people are shockingly, distinctively decent and and wise in their hearts. You know, there is a kind of um, common sense, as you say, that, that really obtains. And I talk to people every day, even people who maybe don't consider themselves conservatives, just regular folks who genuinely feel like this, the, the woke stuff we're dealing with, the neo-Marxist claptrap, they, they, they can tell it's bonkers. And you hear it in their voices. They say, you know, I don't really think this stuff makes sense. But we are suffering from institutional capture. We, you know, the, the people who run our institutions, especially our educational institutions, did go in for this stuff in part because they were, you know, hoodwinked by its pseudo-sophistication, but in part because it... Uh, you know, it, it made them feel like the people who were in charge. It, get, it made them, you know, able to take over all sorts of power. It insinuated them into the halls of power. So all of this, you know, it led to a system where people, kids now go to school, you know, and even if they've been raised well and uh, taught uh, basically rightly, um, they then find themselves fed through this system where they have to recite the diversity oaths, they have to state the right opinions or else they know they'll lose out on their grades. Um, it's a whole culture of, of re-indoctrination that is still very much in place, although I will say finally on it to sound a note of hope, you know, the more people become aware of this, and as I say, the more people realize that those around them aren't necessarily buying into, they don't believe this stuff so much as they're just spouting the mantras. Um, I, I notice local communities, especially, you know, I'm out here in Nashville. It's true also, I think, in Florida. You see a lot of people starting to say, no, there's actually you know, I'm not going to send my kids to these schools anymore. Um, and I'm going to go to the school board for my, you know, for my local high school or middle school and make sure that this stuff isn't getting taught in uh, my area. And I think that's 
entirely to the good. I think we need a lot, a lot more of it. People trusting in, as you said, their common sense rather than the kind of reigning dogma or, or mantra that comes from the elites. I'm so glad you brought up the government schools. It's a great concern of mine. And, and we at great cost, but I'm not complaining, have chosen to homeschool our children. And it's mm-hmm. made a tremendous difference. But as I go out on my morning walk in the neighborhood and I see these poor hapless children and their parents standing at the bus stops, just getting ready to dispatch their kids to the government schools, I really fear for the future because they don't know any better. And I think we're of a generation where many of the parents don't know any better. They don't understand the things that you describe in the book. Right. I mean, I do think that there are more and more parents like you, more and more resources for parents like you. I would imagine you've discovered that there, you know, there's a kind of uh, secret underground railroad going on with this stuff. Um, You know, there are organizations that I've been involved with, like the uh, Ancient Language Institute, which is an independent uh, center for just learning the classical languages, Greek and Latin. And I believe they're they're working now on Hebrew as well for those Mm -hmm. that want to read the Bible. Um, the classic learning test is an alternative to the SAT, which basically pre- presents the canon as the you know thing you need to learn to be proficient and educated, rather than shunting kids through a kind of mechanized system. Um, and they have a bunch of resources also on their website. You know, Hillsdale College. I could name a bunch of institutions that are kind of building a uh, you know this this counter infrastructure. But you're right that we're several generations into this now. And so people need to be, in some sense, woken up. Like they just need to hear from again and again from people they trust that actually there is another way. And it's becoming more and more possible, especially with the Internet. I mean, this is something I I talk in How to Save the West in the book a fair bit about the challenges that technology presents. But this is one opportunity that, that technology presents. It lets us connect with one another, understand uh, across the country that, that we're not alone and have access to educational resources that we don't have to rely on these woke gatekeepers for. It's not solely the Ivy Leagues now that have power over over a classical education, if it ever was. Um, it's, it's now up to parents to take ownership over this stuff. And uh, increasingly, I think they can And yet, Spencer, these parents, the ones who do, as you say, and go to the school board and speak out are being targeted. We see it here in Virginia, but it's across the country. Uh, They're being targeted and classified, and uh, this will certainly dog them uh, going forward. So what do we do to encourage people knowing that this is a big risk that they're taking and uh, to take that risk? It's certainly an enormous undertaking, and we don't want to take it. I don't want to take it lightly at all. The first thing I would say is this. This shows that what you are doing is that important. The regime, if I may put it that way, the, you know, the, the people that don't want you to have uh, access to this stuff, that don't want you to have control over your kids' education, they understand how important it is to uh, get into kids' heads young. And this is something which, in a sinister sort of way, you know, they are tapping into an, a, a, a profound truth. And that is that education isn't just facts and figures. It's not just numbers. Um, and it's not just quote unquote, you know, critical thinking. Um, it's actually uh, the formation of the soul. You know, the Plato and the Greek philosophers talked about this as if the soul were kind of like a, a, an unformed ball of wax that needs to be molded into a certain shape. And you can do this in, in healthful and positive ways, but you can also do this in sinister and, and uh, deformative ways. And so when parents, like in Virginia, you know, when, when parents go out and they 
protests and they make themselves known about this. And the government says, we're going to bring down the force of the state. We're going to classify you as terrorists. Yeah. Um, there's one of two things is possible there. Either, you know, really, we are the bad guys. Mm. Um, and I'd look around and I know that's not true. We're not the bad guys. We're just good. Uh, you know, we're, we're just decent people who don't want to see our kids uh, corrupted by a, a, an anti-human ideology that will teach them, to teach them to hate themselves and one another. So since we're not the bad guys, it must be the case that our opponents know how dangerous we are to their regime. And and what that means is, you know, yeah, you're up against real challenges, but you're also fighting the fight of your life. This is the thing that perhaps we were put on this earth to do is to recover our ancestral traditions, to carry them forward into the next generation. And we may well suffer some risks. I know I've suffered risks, you know, personally, professionally for doing this stuff. But I'm not sure what else I'm supposed to be doing. These things that I have, this education, this uh, reputation, insofar as I have it, I have it to spend it in service of my fellow man. And what greater service could there be than the education of your children? So, yeah, I mean, this is uh, rough stuff, but it's also it, it shows that we're on track. There was a time not so long ago when our society valued thinking and reasoning, and I think it was probably at least a, maybe a generation ago that this was the case in places like the University of Virginia, but other colleges across the country, and now it's really frowned upon. So how do we get over the uh, what I would call the initial resistance to study and learn from the ancient thinkers, particularly when people are basically told what to think instead of how to think? Uh, this is a real obstacle is just this kind of reflexive disgust. There is a sense I experience at least that, you know, just the kind of cultural atmosphere, people have been taught that this stuff doesn't matter or that it's somehow evil and bad. And as I say in the book, it's, you know, it, this is a, a narrative designed to keep you from finding out that it's false, because if you don't think that the great texts are worth reading, if you don't think that uh, deep thought is, is worth engaging with, because it's somehow marked as uh, sexist or evil or wrong, well, then you never have to, you never have to open the books, you never have to think uh, more critically about this this issue, and so it's kind of insul it's kind of an inflation mechanism um, that people have without ever really examining thinking about it. Um, personally, I have one easy one simple question that I ask uh, to kind of get the door open, and that is, how is it working out for you? How is this working out for you to be condemning your ancestors for their sins, for to be scrapping history and erasing the past because? You find flaws with it. And where did you learn, by the way, to condemn the past? What, who taught you that, for instance, all men are created equal and therefore it was wrong for the founders to have held slaves? I mean, who taught you that? It was the founders themselves who were drawing on this great tradition. And, you know, of course, that didn't come into being overnight. Insights are not just natural to man. We don't just kind of wake up and out of our sheer niceness and common sense come to believe in a creator who endows us with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, these truths had to be hammered out and defended. People had to die for them. And it, just because they didn't drop fully formed into the world, um, you and I are going to, what, stand here and condemn those who went before us because, you know, they, they didn't live up to the truths that they taught us. Well, I don't live up to those truths entirely. You don't. Certainly the people that are making these accusations don't. So I would just ask, you know, how is it working out to just scrap the past because it doesn't live up to your expectations? Are you finding yourself wiser, happier, uh, more fulfilled? A lot of times people's everyday lives cry out in witness against the poison of this kind of new ideology. And I, I think, you know, if you, if you ask patiently, um, often that will break down some defenses. 
The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast with guest Spencer Clavin continues in just a moment. Shilling Show Unleashed. Borderhawk.news is a one-stop shop with the latest news about immigration, nationalism, and globalism. The Borderhawk staff daily curates immigration news stories and in the fashion of the Drudge Report, updates the site with cutting-edge content and original first-class commentary. Borderhawk.news highlights national and international media reports, tweets and nuggets buried in local news blurbs, polls, video clips, and policy research. Borderhawk is pro-legal immigration, pro-rule of law, but against an unsecure border as countless Americans have suffered violence at the hands of criminal illegal aliens. And an increasing number of Americans are concerned about how mass migration affects their daily life. Borderhawk.news will remain on the forefront of the immigration issue with a buffet of info to read, evaluate, and share. Bookmark Borderhawk.news. Add them on social media at News on Twitter. Supported investigative journalism. Shilling Show Unleashed. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. We continue with Spencer Clavin. The book is How to Save the West Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. I'd like to go to these crises and discuss them because they're so important, and the way you've broken them down is as well. Let's talk about the crises of reality because a lot of people are looking to virtual reality to escape the real reality. Yes. Uh, They certainly are. And it's funny to be in a place where we even have to use a phrase like the real reality. Yes. Uh, But we do because it's to be distinguished from the kind of confected fantasy that a lot of tech companies, I note, especially Facebook Meta, but there's a a lot of tech companies are offering this as a way out and a solution and escape uh, from all the problems that that we're up against. I started with this because it's really the kind of first principle question. It's not necessarily the one that occurs to everybody most obviously. Is there such a thing as real? Is there such a thing as true or false? But once you get down to it, you realize you have to answer that question before you can talk about anything else. And so I start out by showing that, yeah, when we talk about the transition from Facebook to meta uh, and virtual reality, but also when we look at our politics and we see that, you know, in 2016, all of a sudden bad orange man came on the scene and suddenly the press were so concerned about post-truth politics or post-fact politics. But of course, I'm old enough to remember when Bill Clinton stood up there with his face hanging out and said, you know, well, it depends what the meaning of the word is, is. And this is, you know, this is much deeper than Trump or Clinton or or anybody. It it actually goes back into the roots of our modern crisis and what Nietzsche called the death of God, the kind of end of any absolute truth uh, or or higher power to kind of put a, a final stop and say, yes, this is true. This is good. No matter who says otherwise, these are, you know, these things endure. Um, and so what I'm arguing in the book is that this seems like a new problem, but actually it goes right back to the very beginning of philosophy in the West, of, of Athenian philosophy, especially Socrates, the great kind of originator of the tradition we now stand in says it enters into a world where it's very fashionable to argue that nothing's either good or bad, but thinking makes it so, as, as Hamlet says, um, that all is in flux was the ancient version of this. You, you have your truth. I have my truth. 
And what I'm arguing in the book is simply that if you want to live in a world where there is justice, where we can speak meaningfully to one another and build societies and do anything other than mere power politics, um, you actually have to believe with Socrates that some things are true absolutely. They're eternal, they endure, um, and we're not just going to be able to wish them away or imagine them away in some kind of virtual reality space. This next one is one that we might not have been able to have a conversation about, at least not in the same sense as we do now, even a decade ago. It's the crisis of the body. And I know that, mm-hmm. that it goes beyond transgenderism into transhumanism, and we can talk about both of those things. But the fact that just a few years ago, people on the left were very upset about female genital mutilation, and now they're mm-hmm. lauding it. Uh, I mean, lopping off uh, breasts and, uh, and chemical castrations and things like that. How could we possibly be in a society that values and champions those things as good? This, again, feels like something that just happened overnight. Uh, It feels like, oh, just yesterday, or maybe it was 2020, or maybe slightly earlier than that, people started to realize that there was this insane push, just really uh, extreme push to dissociate the body from the soul, as as I would put it, to Mm -hmm. tell kids that they have something called a gender identity, uh, which is basically totally detached from their physical selves. Their physical selves might be mismatched with their gender identity. Their biological sex might be some kind of accident or uh, in need of kind of modification. And yeah, on one level, that's a very new and radical idea. On the other level, it's kind of one of the oldest uh, problems in philosophy. One of the most ancient issues that we have is that, you know, we, we yearn toward these eternal truths and yet we are, we have spirits, treasures, as Paul says, in clay jars, you know, that we're kind of uh, bound in this, in this physical flesh. And so, you know, you ask, why is it that the left used to be so, you know, anti-female genital mutilation and is now kind of in favor of all these surgeries and, and hormone interventions? Well, it's, it's because the constraints of the body uh, and the constraints of our sort of natural given humanity have been, you know, a, an enemy of the left for a long time. The, the way that we are just, you know, born into certain kinds of bodies, the fact that that makes us into certain kinds of people, um, the fact that we have, you know, relationships with one another as men, as women, um, this seems very unfair to a lot of people on the left. And it taps into a deeper problem, which is the fact that, you know, we're all of us kind of not men, not just men, not just women. We're all of us kind of born bound into the physical world. What I'm arguing in the book is even though this comes with difficulties, there's actually no way out of it. And the promises that we get to transcend it, to move beyond it, these come from Cartesian philosophy, from Neoplatonist philosophy. They never work out. They always end us up sicker and more unhappy. And the the better way forward is to understand our bodies as part of us, as uh, to understand ourselves as embodied souls, because that's crucial to our humanity, to our being human, which is going to be more and more important as the tech gets more advanced. Your body is not a mistake. Your soul is not an illusion. The two of them are bound together. Your body is the language of your soul. And this is the only really sane way forward for understanding yourself. I'd like to go to one which is really, really prominent, I think, in the collapse of our society, which is the the crisis of religion. As people become Mm. detached from their faith and the faith background of the country, often think of uh, John Adams, I'm going to paraphrase him here, but he said that the Constitution was meant only for a moral and a religious people and not suitable to the governance of any other. And those are such wise words because we look at the Constitution 
nation governing the country with a pamphlet. And then you look at Obamacare, which is 3000 pages long for, you know, for healthcare. So talk about the crisis of religion. Absolutely. You know, there is a line in the Bible, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Yes. I think I used to read that line and I would say to myself, oh, this just means that, like, I guess atheists are dumb or something mm-hmm. like it's just a dig at atheists. Um, but that's that's not quite right. It's actually a much, much deeper line than that. What the Bible's saying there is, you know, if you tell yourself you have no God, if you tell yourself you're not worshiping something, then you're fooling yourself. You're making yourself into a fool. It's a kind of self-deception. Because every one of us wakes up in the morning, we get out of bed, we do something because of what we believe to be good. Even if it's just drinking a cup of coffee, it's because we think it's you know good to be awake or you know what have you. Somewhere behind all of that, ultimately, there's going to be a highest good. There's going to be something that you put above all else that you bend the knee to, uh, that you worship. The human heart is a worshiping entity. There's no getting around it. All you can do is pretend that's not true. And so in our culture where uh, religion has become kind of a dirty word and it's been we've been accused of primitivism. We who believe in God have been told that, you know, we're anti-science or whatever. All we've basically done is we've started worshiping other things under other names. And this is where you get things like, you know, I respect capital S, the science, or people, you know, kneeling in in plea for absolution at BLM rallies in the summer of 2020. These things are the acts of people desperately in need of something to worship. And you're right, the other gods, the other things that we worship besides the true creator of the universe, um, those gods will not set us free. They will make us into, you know, unwitting slaves of, of a system that doesn't respect us, that doesn't love us. Dr. Fauci and the WEF are not going to lead us to freedom. Um, and that's why a constitution that's designed for free people is only designed for people who understand that they are worshiping and understand what is worthy of worship, what is worthy of being uh, knelt to and prayed to. Um, and that's the God who created the world. So, you know, people need to be told what to do in these long uh, lists of rules that you're describing um, because their their hearts aren't oriented. They've been you know turned away from the the true God and turn toward worship of a million other things, that's really not going to work out for us. Like, once again, you know, the, the thing that is really happening is not that we've stopped worshiping, it's that we need to ask ourselves, uh, you know, what we worship and, and what would be worthy of our worship. So I look at this in the big picture and I'm pretty pessimistic. And so I guess the, mm-hmm. the question is, are we inevitably on the verge of collapse in America? Because gosh, it sure appears that way. Yeah, you know, I'm actually not going to try to talk you out of your pessimism, mm-hmm. um, because your pessimism is a, a prediction that you have based on uh, looking at the situation and what you think is going to happen. And I think, you know, those those kinds of predictions can be perfectly reasonable. You know, I'm a little bit more optimistic, but but again, I'm, I don't know the future any more than you do. And so we can discuss and debate, you know, what we think is going to happen tomorrow, what we think is going to happen five years down the line. But the truth is, we ultimately just don't know. That means that we should be asking ourselves, what's our job? What's the thing that we ought to do when we wake up tomorrow? And you and I together can work on the same goal, um, you know, as optimists and pessimists. Whatever our belief is about what's about to happen tomorrow, um, our job may be the same. And that is to wake up, 
to go out into our communities to do the best that we can to carry forth the traditions of the ancients to uh, seek the true, the good, and the beautiful insofar as it is given to us to see them. And the wonderful thing, the beautiful thing about understanding ourselves as inheritors of Western civilization is that if you're right as a pessimist or if I'm right as an optimist, either way, we will still be carrying forward a tradition that has survived the rise and fall of nation after nation. This is not something that is going to go away, even if things go terribly tomorrow for us politically. We may have uh, bad days, we may suffer, but nothing that we do in preservation and defense of the truth will be in vain. We're looking at something, uh, at a tradition that was carried forward by men like Cicero, who died at the end of the Roman Republic, um, who thought he was a failure, and yet whose ideas inspired, in large part, the creation, the genesis of this country. When you're thinking in that kind of time scale, that's why despair is a sin. That's why there's no room for despair. Not because things might not go badly, uh, but because we still have a job to do, and doing that job will not be in vain. Finally, you mentioned that you are getting some pushback for taking your stands, and I thoroughly understand that. But I'm hoping that you're being encouraged by people. What's been the response to people who have read and heard you uh, talking about how to save the West? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I've been just bowled over by by the response, by the by positivity, by the uh, uh, gratitude, if, if I may say so. I mean, the thing is that I go out here every day and I say, this stuff matters. You know, the, the wisdom of the past can speak to you. Um, these are texts about how to be excellent at being human. And I do really believe that in my heart, but it's still, it, you know, it's, it's such an encouragement every time somebody reacts and says, actually, yes, I didn't know that this could uh, give me hope, that this could give me direction, um, shake me out of inaction. I'm, I'm hearing all of that in response to this book. It's been an overwhelming reaction now that we've put this thing out into the world. I'm so grateful for that. Um, I hope people continue to discover it. That connection that we make, again, through the things that we say to each other, through the way that we carry forth these ideas, um, that's really everything. That is kind of the, the whole point of the tradition, is to wake people up out of the black night of despair. And when I hear that from folks, uh, it just makes me feel like I'm doing what I was put on earth to do. It's a wonderful thing to behold when people are waking up to ancient wisdom. Spencer Clavin, if people want to get a copy of your book, How to Save the West, or if they want to follow you online and the work that you do, how can they do that best? Thank you for asking. The book is available everywhere books are sold, on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble. Um, if you like listening, I should mention that on Audible, you can get the book uh, narrated by me. I know a lot of folks who listen to podcasts also like to listen to audiobooks. I do too. And you can find me on Twitter at Spencer Clavin, where I have a mailing list and various other ways of, of getting in touch. But anywhere books are sold, you can get How to Save the West. It's a very important book, and I'm so glad you wrote it. Spencer Clavin, thank you for joining us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. That concludes another edition of the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time. Until next time.